Last few weeks, uh, we've been talking about having a correct concept of God, uh, how he's revealed himself to be, not how we would like him to be or other people say he is, but what is actually he said about himself. Uh, we've been talking about God being holy and loving, as Steve was sharing, and that we can't separate the characteristics of God. If we do, we tend to swing from one to the other. And we become almost uh, not sure what God's about, what he's like. And so when we talk about holy and loving, how do we fit those two together? That's what we want to deal with this morning. So Holy Spirit, thank you that you lead us into truth. Not only do you bring revelation, but you bring impartation. And so we open our hearts to you and say, do what only you can do today. In Jesus' name. I want to start this morning with a, uh, an illustration, an anecdotal illustration, which isn't all necessarily true. It's kind of like a parable. But uh, Mary and I have a two-year-old granddaughter. Uh, her name is Zoe. She's a delight. Uh, they visit us at Christmas. And uh, we spent some time preparing the house and getting everything ready. You know, our house has a deck out the back that has about a two-meter drop to the ground. And in preparing, I didn't get up one day and decide I'm going to put a balustrade on our deck to take away Zoe's freedom. We have a balustrade on our deck, but why do we have a balustrade? Because gravity is real even if she doesn't know it, it's still real. If she were to climb up on that balustrade, I'd run and, and grab her. Uh, but see, as we mature, we begin to understand and know that gravity is real. A number of years ago, when we still lived in Melbourne, a family was living in an apartment on the 15th floor uh, of apartment building in Docklands, and some of us were meeting there. And, and out back, they had a deck, but they're way up high. And their deck had a glass balustrade with no handrail. And it was interesting how many of those who were gathered there wouldn't go out on the deck. Or if they did, they wouldn't go near the edge. They stayed in the back. Why? Because we understand gravity. And it was a bit freaky because it, the balustrade was glass, even though you actually couldn't fall over unless you tried. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the uh, documentary Free Solo about a guy who climbs El Capitan in Yosemite without any ropes, any protection? Uh, in watching that, I was so tense. I used to, to climb when I was younger and uh, realized what happens and these guys are making moves. A thousand feet up, this guy hanging on the tip of his thumb. And we know what happens if he comes off. In fact, in the documentary, they go on to say that eight of his friends in the previous year had all died from free solo climbing. Uh, not very smart. But see, we know about gravity. But if my son 
not my granddaughter, but my son who is 36, if he comes and sits on the balustrade of our deck, I'm not going to run and tackle him and pull him off. I'm not going to grab him because he understands. He knows gravity. He can make a choice. But let me tell you, if someone were to come into my yard and tell my granddaughter there's no gravity, I'd be very angry. As would you. Why do I tell you that? Because many people have a wrong concept of God. Let me tell you this. God didn't wake up one day on the wrong side of the bed and decide to take all the fun out of life. He's not arbitrary or capricious. He didn't say, ah, I'm just going to see if I can put boundaries and stop them from having fun. Neither did he decide one day that he's going to be angry with us. He's not a grumpy old man with a stick just waiting to beat us if we get out of line. How many people have that idea? See, the reality is that God is holy. Holy means he's different, he's pure, so much so that anything of corruption can't exist in his presence without being consumed. God understands that that is the reality of the spiritual universe. Gravity is the reality of our physical universe. If you get too close to the edge, you can fall off. Fortunately, it's not very far. But the reality of the spiritual universe is that sin and corruption can't exist in God's presence because he's holy. We read Leviticus 19.2, be holy for I am holy. He's pure. Let me say this. God didn't choose to be holy. He is holy. That's the reality of the spiritual universe. And the reality is that some actions on our part defile us, corrupt us. So we can't be in his presence without being consumed. That's called sin. God didn't get angry and say, I'm going to take fun out of life and say, this is sin. He said, no, this is the reality of the universe, that these are the things that will cause you to be consumed if you were to come into his presence. See, he knows the reality and the consequences. And in love, he's trying to protect us and save us. Just like my granddaughter falling from the deck, I would do everything I can to try and protect her and save her. I wouldn't be angry. Still with me there for a moment. How did we get such a wrong concept of God? How did we get this picture? of an angry, judgmental God waiting to beat us with a stick. And fortunately, Jesus got in the way and took our beating for us. 
How did we get that? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you a very short history lesson. For about the first 1,200 years of Christianity, after Jesus died and rose again and established his church and his kingdom, the concept was that God is holy and that sin separates us and the result of that separation is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death or the result of sin is death. And the concept was that Jesus took our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree. See, this concept goes back to the Old Testament where Jesus was the scapegoat. Sin was placed upon him. He was also the sacrifice for a new covenant, the covenant of love. That was the concept for about 1,200 years. It matched holiness and love together, and we saw God as being holy and being loving. But toward the end of that period, there was a shift and how theologians began to think. And they got focused on the concept of ransom. The idea was that a price was paid to buy us back. And they got caught up with, who was the price paid to? Was it paid to God? Or was it paid to Satan? Did Jesus buy us back from Satan? Did Jesus buy us back from God? Caused a lot of problems, but about 1,200, a guy named Anselm basically said, in sinning, we dishonored God. And therefore, we have a debt of honor to God. In essence, God was offended by our sin And so we have a debt of honor. So Jesus, being unsinful, paid a debt of honor on our behalf. But about 300 years later, another guy comes along named John Calvin. John Calvin was a, a lawyer, trained as a lawyer before he got saved, brought a legal framework into the Christianity with a focus on justice. And basically, he said God was offended but there had to be a punishment for sin. Therefore, Jesus took our punishment. He paid our debt by taking our punishment. And in the process from 1200 to 1500, there was a shift that took place from sin being the problem that separates us from God to punishment being the problem. Before it was sin was what Jesus removed. Later it became Jesus paid our punishment because the focus became more on punishment. 
For God to be just, Calvin said, sin had to be punished. So there was a shift from a focus on a holy God being different and pure to a focus on a just God, a judge punishing sin and sinners. Big shift. We need to be free from that and go back to what the Bible actually says. Otherwise, we have this split image of God who's angry. But doesn't the Bible talk about the wrath of God? Some of you are asking. What, I've read that. Yes, it does. You know, the first time wrath is mentioned is in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 24. It says, and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. What's he talking about? If you, uh, those who afflict any widow or, or fatherless child, if you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear the cry and I will be angry towards you. What will he be angry with? He'll be angry with those who afflict the widow and the fatherless, those who take advantage of someone who's vulnerable. Interesting that this is the first time. In Genesis 6.6, talking about sin, it says, uh, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it was grieved in his heart. It says actually, 6.5, that the evil of the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. So God was not wrathful, he was sorry. What happened? What happened was the law had been given. You say, but what does that mean? What the law does is makes us aware of sin. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. So the law wasn't given to make us right with God. It was given to show us that we weren't right. And so now we have a knowledge. Now we understand gravity and if we cause someone, if we deceive someone, God's going to be angry. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who is God unhappy with? Those who suppress the truth. They know and they deceive. They come into my yard and tell my granddaughter, there is no gravity and you won't get hurt if you fall off of this. I would be angry. And I'm yelling, sorry. <laughs> Scaring them babies. The wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth. Matthew 18, 6. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned and thrown in the sea. Don't tell my granddaughter gravity doesn't exist. Don't tell people God is not holy and there's no consequence for sin. That'll make God mad. Genesis 3, 4. We see in the very beginning that this is exactly what the devil did. God says, if you eat of this, you're going to die. And the devil says, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. There's no gravity. You're not going to die. Revelation 12.9 says, talking about Satan, says he's the deceiver, the serpent of old, who is the deceiver of the whole world. He deceives the whole world. Who's God angry with? He's angry with anyone who deceives others and misrepresents him. Who says, ah, it's not bad to be separate from God. I'd rather hang out in hell with my buddies. In fact, it goes on to say in James 3.1, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that we shall face a stricter judgment or accountability. That one always gives me pause. I don't normally sleep very well on Saturday nights. Not because I'm nervous, but because I have a healthy respect for preaching and teaching the Word of God. It doesn't say, let not many of you be evangelists. Because you'll face a greater responsibility. It doesn't say, let not many of you be pastors. It actually doesn't say, let not many of you be prophets. You'll face a stricter accountability, though there's a lot in the Bible about false prophets because a, a prophet who says God said something when God hasn't is also deceiving. God is loving. The reality of the universe is that God is holy. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord but who has clean hands and a pure heart? Why? Because we can't exist when God's glory is revealed. He is a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. When we understand that and we understand the price that he paid, that Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God so we can come into his presence, we understand holiness and love coming together. God doesn't become less to love me. Love is elevated to something great. Just an aside before we finish here. Sin is at heart, at root, rebellion against God. 
Sin is unwillingness to acknowledge that he's God. It's the epitome of selfishness. That's the root of sin. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. Talking about the devil. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of cloud and I will be like the most high. Genesis 3, 5. For we said, you won't surely die. For God knows that in the day that your eyes, you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. doesn't mean that we're not following the law. It actually means rebellion. So the heart of sin, the root of sin, is rebellion against God. The fruit is all kinds of selfishness. Whether it's lying for an advantage, whether it's stealing, whether it's abusing someone, all that is the fruit. Whether it's greed, all that is the fruit of a root, which is rebellion against God. Why do we need to know that? Because I can be sorry for a fruit if I get caught. If I tell a lie and I get called out, I can be sorry, but all I've done is switched one fruit for another fruit. I'll be sorry about lying, but I'm not gonna change my greed. Repentance is turning from rebellion to God. That's the problem with religion. Religion focuses on the fruit. If you can just remove all this stuff and be a better person, the problem is you still have a root of sin. And until that's dealt with, you're not restored to relationship with God because he is still holy. Oh, but look at me. I don't do anything. I'm the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus said, ah, this one, which is what? Now he says, uh, sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. But first one, the one that was skipped, because Jesus said, have you obeyed the commandments? And he listened, but he skips you worship God only. In him only will you serve. Guy says, oh, I've done all those. But when Jesus touches the heart, are you sold out to God? He goes away sad. We can say, oh, look at me. I've done all these good things. Look at my life. Aren't I a wonderful person? Everyone should honor me. But inside, I'm still rebellion against God. God's looking at the heart much more than the actions. What do the actions point out? They point out that we have a root problem. 
the fruit. So the law comes and says, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this because these, one, this is not how you worship God, but also this is not how you get along well with each other. But what it points out to us is that from that comes a knowledge of sin. Not a knowledge of these things, we already know that, but a knowledge that we're in rebellion against God. Which is also why when you've repented of this and you stumble with something here, God doesn't reject you. Because he looks on the heart and says, ah, you're in the, you still live in this body. It says when we come to Christ, what? We don't sin. But if we do, we have an advocate. doesn't mean that Jesus is trying to convince God not to hit us. Jesus saying said, They've already turned from rebellion. How about you? How's your heart? Have you turned from rebellion to God? Are you willing to submit to him as king and Lord? That's why the Bible talks about Jesus as being Lord, master, king. He's not just a nice teacher. He's not just a good person who walks along with me. He's actually the king of the universe, and we have to submit to his lordship. The word Lord occurs 270 times in the New Testament. The word Savior occurs 26. They occur together 19 times. Every time they occur together, it's Lord and Savior. It's never Savior and Lord. What am I saying? Submitting to Jesus' Lordship is our salvation. Repenting of sin means I deal with the root. I turn from rebellion and I turn to God and the only way I can turn to God is to submit to his lordship, to his rulership, that he is the king of the universe, not an angry God who's out to hit me, a loving God who recognizes the reality is that he's holy and he's doing everything he can to redeem us. So what was the debt that Jesus paid? Let me tell you, it's not actually a biblical concept. I spent hours this week studying, finding where is that? There is one scripture in Colossians that talks about the handwriting against us has been blotted out, and in one translation, they translate that as the debt against us has been removed. The reality is that Jesus didn't just pay for our punishment. He actually removed our sin. I said it a couple of weeks ago. God does not... That was not tongues. God does not look at you 
through rose-colored glasses. He doesn't look at you through Jesus-colored glasses. He doesn't say, I look at you, but I don't see you, I see Jesus. He actually says, Jesus has removed your sin and you're righteous. When he looks at you, you are righteous. And you're righteous because he loved you so much. We don't need this divided view of God. He's judging and he's loving. I wonder what mood he's in today. When we understand holiness and love and when they come together, we're overwhelmed with his goodness. And the result is a hatred of evil. We don't have to try and convince ourselves. And a delight in the purpose and plan of God. We're going to be talking about effective kingdom ministry, partnering with God. All this is kind of introduction because if we have a wrong image of God, we're going to have this tentative, I don't want to get it wrong. What if I do something wrong? God will smack me with a stick. I'm going to ask you if you bow your head. Close your eyes for a moment if you would so you're not distracted by others. Is Jesus the king of your life? Are you the king? In the uh, kids' church last week in preparation for the fact that we were having baptism, they talked about uh, on a kid's level, I want to be king. Is Jesus king or am I king? I'm the boss. If you've ever just been sorry that you got caught, what happens with that, what comes with that is shame. And shame is not removed just because we say we're sorry. Repentance is coming to God and turning from our rebellion. Have you turned from rebellion? Jesus is not the means to your end. The lie of the prosperity gospel is that Jesus will be the the means to your end. I want to be rich. God will make me rich. It's just catering to our selfishness. It doesn't deal with the root problem. We're still separated from God, and we will still be consumed. That God looked at you and loved you so much that he came and took your sin on himself that you could be redeemed.
Lord, we just stand humbled, amazed. Lord, we can't comprehend without your spirits bringing revelation. But Lord, I just pray for those of us who've had a wrong image of you that you would change that even now. I also pray for those who've been bound with shame. I just declare freedom from that as we turn and deal with the root. And we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A little bit longer than normal, but uh, what do I say now? <laughs> say, say. <laughs> I, I can't hear, so. Here, do that right there. I could say something while well, he's got that there. You think it's. He is the only way. Jesus is the only way. If you don't know him this morning, we want to introduce you to him. So don't leave this place um, without speaking to someone. Uh, if you want to know who to speak to, look for someone who looks spiritual. Or you're welcome to come down the front and there'll be someone here who'd love to talk to you and, and introduce you to Jesus. Otherwise, have a great week. Uh, freedom from sin. Shame. We're a, we're a polished outfit around here. If you need prayer for anything... Uh, specifically what's been spoken about this morning. Um, there is some of that available for you. The end. <laughs>